You are listening to the Tech Heads F1 podcast with Bryson, Molly, and Dr. Ops. Welcome back to the Tech Heads F1 podcast. I am your host, Bryson Sullivan, joined as always by my excellent co-host, Molly and Dr. Obbs. How are we today, guys? Doing great, Bryson. That was an amazing qualifying. I'm sure we're going to get into it in a minute. Yeah, I'm doing good too. I'm no longer dying from the paddock plague and I'm still trying to come down from the quali high as well because that was quite wild. We are going to talk about qualifying, rest assured with that. This is the Tech Heads F1 podcast, which is nominally about F1, but we do like to branch out to other types of motorsports as well, including WEC, IMSA, and IndyCar to whatever extent that we can. And we also like to get the experience and feedback from people who aren't explicitly engineers, even if they have an engineering background. Oftentimes, it's really helpful to get feedback from drivers, people who've actually been behind the wheels of these incredible machines and can talk about them in a first-person context. So with that, I'd like to welcome our guest for this week, established racer, uh, STEM advocate, and an all-around cool guy, J.R. Hildebrand. Hey, guys. Glad to be on. We're really happy to, to have you on, JR. I think everyone knows you as an extremely talented racing driver and having a storied career in motorsport, but you're also a huge STEM advocate. You have an incredible background in engineering kind of as well, and more experience than people might recognize. So we're glad to have you in the conversation, and thank you for joining us. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's uh, I think when I was growing up, you know, the design component of cars and and certainly of race cars, um, I actually grew up, interestingly, sort of around a lot of vintage racing. My dad, what, he was a CPA as as a by trade on uh, by day, I guess, but had a vintage race car. He had a 68 Camaro that was a road racing, like Trans Am style race car from when I was a kid. So, you know, growing up in Northern California between Sears Point and Laguna Seca, we kind of saw everything and and the that design and engineering side of of just seeing all the variety, particularly when you show up at a vintage race you know, over so many different eras and so many different looks and sounds, and you kind of see that evolution packaged in one place. It was a big part of what drew me, drew me into the sport at the beginning. And so, you know, that was, I think kind of in parallel to building a career as a race car driver, you know, the math and science and engineering component of what goes on in motorsport has also always kind of kept me into it as a, as a fan, you know, and that's, uh, that's served me well behind the wheel also. So yeah, happy to be happy to be here chatting with you guys about it. Yeah, and I, I want to make sure I give you an opportunity to to talk about all the things that you've done. But for those who may recognize JR's voice, he's also the co-host or one of the hosts for the Races IndyCar podcast. He has history driving IndyCars and doing all kinds of fun things. How, how many different series have you actually raced in? Do you, do you re- even remember at this point? Yeah, it's a good question. A lot of like dabbling in in other stuff over the years. You know, done the twenty four hours of Daytona, done the twelve hours of Sebring, Pikes Peak Hill Climb, Rallycross. I mean, I've I'm licensed up to a double A license at Bonneville. I've done some professional drifting. So uh, yeah, there's there's def- <laughs> there's there's still some gaps I'd like to fill, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's obviously spent the majority of my career racing open wheel, but definitely have taken the opportunity to step out my step outside my comfort zone when possible. And that's definitely been a fun part of it for sure. And I think I read somewhere that you got a test drive with Force India and Formula One as well. Is that correct? 
Yeah, I had a brief encounter with Formula One. So I had I had won the Indy Lights Championship, what was called the Indy Lights Championship at the time, now NXT. And sort of the story actually is a little bit more in-depth than this. And and I'll give you just the little some tidbits because it's sort of a cool story, which is VJ Malia, who was the owner of Force India at the time, owned property in Sausalito, California, which was my hometown. He owned like he owned a house there. He owned the local newspaper. Make of that what you will, like whatever was going on there. But they used to have this car show down in town like once a year. And and there, you know, it's a it's an affluent area, you know, being in the in the Bay Area kind of in general. Lots of guys and and guys in Marin County, which is uh, where Sausalito is, that had some various car collections and stuff. But one year we went down there and there was just this massive like 427 Cobra old F1 car. It's like stuff that, you know, somebody wasn't just rolling out of their garage and bringing downtown. And so my dad and I followed the guy that was shuttling these cars back and forth to wherever they were going. Turns out this guy, Malcolm Page, took care of all of VJ's stuff that he had a part of his car collection was in town in Sausalito's totally nondescript building. And Malcolm himself was a former F1 mechanic, had been around it for a long time, um, was pretty close with VJ. And so this was probably 2005, 2006, a few years prior. I won the Indy Lights Championship 2009. So this is a few years prior to kind of this whole thing happening with the Force F1 team, but to sort of make a long story short, I I sort of just had a little I had a little in with VJ at the time. Like he at least knew who I was. I think like he knew there was a kid <laughs> in 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 one of his various hometowns, and and so Malcolm and I stayed in close contact. I won I won a few championships along the way there. Won the Indy Lights championship, and so got included in a, a simulator test that Force India was doing with a with several young drivers. Uh, Paul Daresta, I know Neil Yanni was there. Corinne Chandock was there. I think they had some other guys that had won like junior formula championships that year in 2009. At the time, they had a technical partnership with McLaren. So we were on the McLaren sim. They basically, we all went out. I flew over. You had two sessions in the sim and and ultimately, they just picked the two guys out of the sim test that they thought that they wanted to stick in the young driver test. And so Paul and I ended up being, I guess, the two fastest guys out of the sim. And wow. uh, that's how I sort of earned my earned my way into uh, <laughs> into the three day young driver test, which was which was really incredible. And it's funny thinking back about it at the time, like the difference between I had driven an Indy car at that point, but even the difference between an Indy car and an F one car from a technology perspective at that point was really dramatic. Like an Indy car had. <laughs> one rotary knob and like a radio button on the steering wheel at the time, you know, like there was no messing around with anything. So it was a, I mean, Indy Lights car had a radio button that was still a wire coiled around the you know steering wheel when you took it off, right? <laughs> like it was, it was very, very, we weren't even, you know, the, the Indy Lights cars were still a sequential, you know, it take your hand off the steering wheel kind of foot clutch situation oh, at the wow. time. So a big difference for me, but an incredible experience, and one that you know we after the test, Paul was Paul was clearly the guy to to kind of move forward in that role. He was a Mercedes young driver, you know, junior driver, and and all that. He had been at her, he had been in the F one car at Hareth before, which is where the test was. There was sort of no questioning that part of the outcome. But the team, you know, I, I think had that that test happened really late in the year, as it still does now, but it was sort of you know, early December, I think had the test happened earlier, had we gone down that path a little bit sooner, the team was keen to get me in GP2 the next year to kind of, you know, do some racing in Europe and and start committing a little bit more to that ladder, which, which ultimately just because it was that late in the year kind of wasn't something that was going to happen. So I came back to the US and, you know, within a year had a full-time gig in IndyCar and, and that's, that's been where my, where my career went. And I'm not 
and there's, I'm not mad about that at all, but yeah, that was my, you know, brief flirtation with, uh, with a little more racing overseas. We could spend the entire rest of the episode, you know, talking about your trajectory as one of the few Americans who had a shot at actually racing in F1, especially given that we're having the Miami GP this weekend and all of the fanfare around Logan Sargent and his work and becoming one of the first American drivers to race in F1 since not Scott Speed. It wasn't Scott Speed. We had someone, we had Rossi in between, I'm pretty sure. But yeah. but it's a unique journey and it's a really interesting thing to, to discuss. But I don't want to spend the entire episode talking about that. Let's get back to this rather unusual qualifying session that we just had a, a few minutes ago uh, for the Miami GP. I think that's a good call. I, I think it was Murray Walker who said that anything can happen in Formula One and often does. <laughs> yeah, that that is exactly <laughs> how I would describe the proceedings of this qualifying. Uh, what were your immediate thoughts on uh, on watching it, JR? Man, just that it, it it didn't surprise me, I guess, in some respects that the four five into six, that whole complex, that that didn't end up becoming, you know, something that caused sort of a, a stir or a ruckus of some point at some point within the qualifying session, just because the cars are so totally on the limit there. You can see that there's so many different, I mean, watching Leclerc, watching the, what ended up catching him out, it's kind of like, okay, is it just because he bottomed? Is it because he, you know, stalled the diffuser because there's a little bit of the car, you know, doing a bit of a smash against the ground, come up, smash against the ground. You know, there's, there's all kinds of different reasons why it could just be like you've seen throughout practice that cars are just carrying a little bit too much aero balance or the wind shifts that little tiny bit. I mean, that type of section where you're going left, right, left, right, left without ever really getting totally set, you know, and kind of recentered between those corners you're just asking for something to have if the car if, if you're if you're taking understeer out which is what you're going to be doing the whole way through the qualifying session like you're going to be running that absolute ragged edge of how much how much cop how much front end you can handle cuz ultimately the more you can pile in the faster the car is going to go you know somebody's going to end up right on the limit and and i guess with that with that in mind it doesn't completely shock me that it ended up being leclerc because he seems like the guy that is just right on the verge of disaster like at all times and so which is which i i say as a as an enormous compliment to him that he's extracting that much out of the car um you know he's he's extracting more than is probably available to him a lot of the time we're seeking to extract more than is available to him a lot of the time so you know a crazy way for it to end a bummer that i in my mind a bummer that we just didn't get to see what everybody really had in the tank there at the end of those rounds i would have been it would have been really interesting to see for example in my mind like where fernando actually stacked up um, you know, there's some of those things that just end up being questions that we we don't really know the answer to. But yeah, I mean, a, a wild a wild ride around a wild track. Yeah, and what's uh, I, from a driver perspective? I mean, you know, when you're in say like Charles's position or even Max, you know, we didn't get to see Max's run. He had that you know one shot right, and you know you've just got to pin it and you've got to nail it. You know, especially in Miami where you've got a real grippy line, and outside that line, it is like ice capades, right? <laughs> What's that like? I mean, like you just have no fear and you're just like, look, I'm just going to send it and let's see where we end up. I mean, especially with these cars, the way that they are, there's just, I think probably one of the things that not even having driven one, but just talking to some of the guys that have gotten in the car and tested some of the IndyCar guys that have gone over and come back, you can just watch it and tell that the level of commitment required, like almost blind faith that the car is going to stick is... I think totally underappreciated just watching it on TV or even watching it live. I mean, when at least when you're watching it live, you get that just 
holy moly sense of the speed of the car. Like that comes across very, if you're standing on the apex of one of those corners, it is shocking how fast the car rips by, right? Um, you, you can throw up all the, they're pulling five lateral Gs, they're doing this many miles an hour or whatever, until you actually, it's like it's like watching a top fuel dragster. Like until you actually witness it in person, there's just nothing that can quite help you grasp what's really going on there. And so as as a driver watching that, kind of knowing that, you know, we have that, we, we talk about that in the context of like qualifying at Indianapolis, like there is such an enormous gap between the experience that I'm having in the race car when the thing is like, I'm having to, you know, handle the thing on, you know, when it's over the edge on the tire at the, at the end of the four, going through three and four at the end of your fourth lap. And you're just like praying to make it through those last <laughs> two corners to finish a lap, to get to the end of the end of the qualifying session. You know what that's like compared to I me. Mean, a lot of times our engineers are watching on the TV feed in the garage. Like, I don't know. It didn't look that bad. Um, like, well, we'll trim out another half a degree. You know, the next time you go out like, dude, no, hang on. <laughs> You're like, it felt that bad. And so I guess I, you know, I, I say all that just to say watching, watching F1 these days, it just, I get the sense that it's like that everywhere in qualifying that whether it's a traditionally super high grip track, high downforce, high grip, or it's places like this. I mean, I think frankly, the, the lower downforce, the tracks, the lower grip level, the more intense it looks to me, because to your point, you don't have that margin of being, you know, a, a, going to this any of the temporary circuits compared to, say, Hungary or Spa or somewhere that's only ever race cars. The the difference between being right on line versus being an inch and a half, four inches, six inches offline is is a little more gradual. Here, it's like boom, as soon as you're off at all from where you need the car to be going. It's just, you know, your toast. And so I think that that aspect of F1 is really incredible to me right now. The the mindset that these guys have to be able to have to go out and just say, you know what, there's going to be places on the track during this lap that I can't even rely on my reaction and feeling of the car because by the time I'm reacting to something, it's already gone wrong and it's already too late. That's just a wild mentality to have at a place like this. You know, I'm, I'm used to going to the occasional track track that it's like, you know, big oval tracks. It's kind of like that because you're going 200 plus miles an hour. These guys, I feel like there's there's a part of every circuit that they go to that it's that type of deal. So, you know, that's really something where you see, you know, thinking about Baku last weekend and the, you know, the, one of the talking points was the confidence that Carlos had compared to Leclerc and kind of seeing that difference, how that was manifesting itself in the pace that they were able to extract out of the car. I think that's a big part of it is just if you don't trust yourself if you don't trust the car to be able to give it everything you think is there plus a little when it comes time to extract the pace, it's just, there's no way. Yeah, I, I think your visceral experience as someone who has had so much experience driving the cars is so helpful to convey to the average person how extreme these machines actually are. Even if it looks pedestrian and somewhat calm on these, you know, uh, stabilized cameras in the cars and you're saying, oh, modern cars aren't even hard to drive anymore. It's so easy. There's no there's no difficulty anymore. It, it could not be further from the truth. And it just emphasizes how much respect I think uh, you guys deserve for putting you know your life on the line in, in some situations based on what you expect the grip to be. 
you have to know what the grip is going to be, what the car can do before you get to the corner. Finding out in the middle of the corner is a little bit too late. What you were saying struck me just because of, I was looking at Sergio Perez's brush with the wall approaching turn four, and he hit the outside wall on, on the turn in. And you have to realize, you have to realize he's not even looking in that direction at the turn in. He's yeah. looking at the apex. So these drivers are judging to within millimeters of relative gap, a distance that they're not even looking at. They have a theoretical understanding of where the wall is and whether or not you actually hit it is a function of your perception of the geometry without even seeing it. It's, it's very impressive. Just what the guys are doing is, is totally nuts. And, and the F1 cars are just absurdly fast these days, you know, uh, it's, it's really cool. And, and I'm, I'm glad to see also just as, as kind of a sidebar, like the safety measures that they've brought to the temporary circuits are, are starting to become pretty next level. Like I think at, uh, maybe it was at Jetta that they had like safer barrier around a temporary circuit. I'm like, man, this is, this is the real deal, you know, and this is it. So it's really cool. It's, it's cool. It's always cool to see, when you know within a championship or just within motorsport in general that you have a little bit of a little bit of that advancement coming in advance of something awful happening that you know forces you to to make that change and i think that you know f1's stature f1's just popularity you know the investment that the teams are making all of that stuff you know it's cool to see those things going hand in hand i was going to jump in really fast and say that the the margin to the line is almost giving me and you were talking about ovals some of the texas motor speedway running in years past where <laughs> you put even an inch of a tire in the indy cars off of the line and up into that second line where they've put it's usually where they put the traction compound and it's like ice and you're you're right into the wall at 200 plus miles an hour it's it's giving me the same vibes as is texas races of years past yeah, it's I mean, I think they they mentioned on their broadcast a little bit about like driving in the rain. It's, there's there's mm-hmm. there are these kind of occasional conditions that are really extreme where if you just put, you know, you say put a foot round, it's like you put a, you know, a couple of millimeters wrong, right? Yeah. Um, you know, that that it just all all kind of goes sideways. So, you know, yeah, that's it's it'll be interesting to watch the race. I mean, obviously in yeah. in pract- through practice, through qualifying, you just don't you don't really build up I mean, they're, they are a not building up any offline grip, um, because there's no, no reason to right um, throughout those sessions, you got to sort of figure something will, you know, that will occur to some degree, the more races of various kinds, maybe they have over the course of, of the weekend. But, you know, we can certainly hope that that doesn't play too significant a factor on, you know, cause we know they've shortened the DRS zones. They've done some of those things to, you know, to, to enable us to have a good race. I think that the, obviously we've got a Red Bull up front, but one thing that maybe ensures that we still at least have an interesting race is that there's another Red Bull that's not all the way up front. So if, if nothing else, we'll get to see Max Verstappen have a little fun out there over the course of the, the event. Yeah. It's going to be a really spicy starting grid i mean when you look at fernando alonso up there with perez i mean he's going to be on his demon game so that's going to be really interesting (laughs) you know and then you've got both charles you know i mean the ferrari looked pretty good obviously you know until charles binned it but um you've got charles charging from the back you've got max charging from the back as well and then you've got you know a couple surprises up front you've got the haas which was really racy this weekend and like yeah what are they cooking (laughs) yeah let them cook. <laughs> yes, let them cook. <laughs> that 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 Chipotle sponsorship is really paying off, I suppose. Yeah, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a really interesting race, and you know you, you've obviously Jr. You spent 
a lot of time in different kinds of cars. You know, we've already started talking about that a little bit, right? We've got IndyCar, uh, Indy Lights that you're in. You spent a little bit of time in an F1 car, and then you've also done the Pikes Peak Hill Climb. What's been your favorite out of all of these? Like, what was your favorite experience, and what do you remember the most? I think I think the experiences that really, I, I, yeah, I think it's it's easier for me to frame it in terms of like what is a more isolated favorite experience as opposed to, you know, what's my favorite discipline to have raced in? Because I have a lot of those. Like, I feel like every time I got in something, every time throughout my career, I've gotten in something different. Just that first, that first part of that learning process is such an exciting kind of group of moments to be a race car driver. Like you, you just have the, the necessity to learn, learn quickly, learn something new, often in a totally weird environment. Like when I did the Pikes Peak Hill Climb, I was, I guess I was prepared for that to seem a lot different, but I had never really driven the car, but it was a last minute call. It was this thing with Porsche that they run the, the Cayman GT4 class at, at Pikes Peak. And I guess one of, they had a TV show, they had all this stuff going on. One of the one of the Porsche factory drivers, I think, was supposed to do it and bailed at the last minute. So I got a call from my pal, Jeff Swart, who's like a longtime Pikes Peak racer and driven. He's won his class in various Porsches at Pikes Peak, a, a kind of world-renowned producer and photographer and videographer. Um, he was helping Porsche put this whole program together and knows I live in Colorado, knows I was I had an off weekend that weekend. Like, hey, are you? would you be willing to like just get in and go do this? And so no testing, no nothing. You get into practice. The way that practice works for Pikes Peak is, so I, I guess working backwards, race day is the only day that they actually shut the mountain down from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. All the practice, you practice Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, it's all between like 5.30 in the morning and 8.30 in the morning. They open up the park gates to the general public at 9 a.m. every day. So you have to have all your stuff packed up off the mountain by 9 a.m. So you're up at like 2.30 in the morning, getting all your stuff up there. It's pitch black. You're on the super weird sleep schedule. Um, you get up there and they they practice the through the, through all the practice sessions. You only ever see a third of the track at a time. So they break all the competitors up into three groups. You practice on the bottom then the middle and the top. For us, just the group that we were in was kind of like time attack, GT3, GT cars. And the so we showed up the first day and we were practicing in the middle section of the mountain, which is kind of where you go, where you go uh, through tree line, basically all those hair, hairpin switchbacks um, you know, you'd be familiar with if, if you've seen pictures or, um, or watched Pikes Peak. And it was just one of those things that I'm sitting there thinking, all right, like I've qualified cars on the ragged edge at like 240 miles an hour, bending into turn one flat out at Indianapolis. I am used to, I've been in high risk situations. Like this is that, that all by itself is not totally new to me, but this just seems absolutely insane that I'm here driving this car. Like I, <laughs> I made a, I sort of made a siding lap up the hill and and it was kind of one of those things that I'm, I'm, you're having to literally like remind yourself because there's no there's no guardrail anywhere. And so I'm driving this thing up and and like, oh, you know, the tires are kind of not the tires aren't hot. We've got no tire warmers. We've got no nothing. I've never really driven the car before. I'm kind of making my way up the hill and I'm and I'm leaving like a full car width to the edge of the road everywhere. <laughs> and and so I had to I literally had to sit there and go like, 
talk to myself up at the top of the hill, like, okay, JR, like you have never, ever once in your entire career from go-karting to now ever just like driven the car off the track on the straightaway. Like you've never done that. So you got to like trust yourself here to just kind of like use it, use the road, <laughs> use, you know, bend in from where you actually, but you, know, you, you think about Sergio Checo just nicking the wall at the quarter entry to turn four. Okay. That's really high stakes, but it's even more high stakes if you drop a wheel at entry somewhere at Pikes Peak. So just wow. going kind of going through all of those emotions, doing something that's unfamiliar getting outside my comfort zone. That's just, you know, even, even like uh, I'll give you the sort of extreme examples, like going out to Bonneville. I went out there just cause I just thought it looked rad. Basically. Um, I'd had some friends, some fab guys that do carbon work in the IndyCar series, build the bodies for a couple of the, you know, ultra fast streamliners that are out at Bonneville. So I, I knew those guys went to go hang out with them, got out there. Once I got there, they were like, Oh, you have all your stuff with you. It's like, well, of course I have all my stuff with me. They were like, well, we'll just, We'll just start, you know, bouncing you in and out of people's cars to get you licensed up. And I'm kind of thinking, okay, you know, the 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 D license or whatever you have to you have to go through this whole process. Um, it's like bracket racing, basically. So you your your driver's license is good for 124 miles per hour. You know, you have to go do a rookie pass between 125 and 150, and then between 150 and 175, 175, 200, 200, 250. So you have to like go out and make these passes. And I was kind of thinking like, I've gone through a corner at 230. Like, shouldn't I be able to skip ahead here and and just go go do one of the fast things? But rightfully so, they said no and made me go out and go do the whole thing. And so I'm, I get in the car, I'm, I'm in this big block, like thousand horsepower 1968 Camaro, like drag racing car, basically on the salt. And, uh, you you get bump started off the line, which is a totally weird thing. I've got, there's no speedo. So I'm just having to like do the math of the tack and what gear I'm in to kind of figure out like how fast am I going here? It was funny that I had these two Kiwi guys working on the car and they said, they, they kind of told me when I went out there, like, you know, you'll have to pull the parachute because that's part of making the rookie passes to like make sure that they know that you know where the parachute is and and all this stuff. But it probably, you know, making your rookie pass, you'll just be going 150. Like you probably won't notice when the parachute deploys, like it won't really slow the car down that much. And so I've got the end of the pass, pulled the chute and for real, like didn't. And so I'm, I'm like traveling to having to kind of hustle the thing on the salt. Like it's only got rear brakes. I'm trying to get off the get off the groomed course and there's only this one kind of, you know, track basically like a taxiway off the groomed course to get over to, before you're literally driving through like whoops, like sand whoops out of the salt. <laughs> like they only groom part of the whole thing only to find out that the reason it didn't feel like it had slowed down, like the parachute hadn't slowed me down is because the parachute hadn't deployed in the first place. And so like that was, that was why, but it was just, there's all of these kinds of things, like even at a, you know, Bonneville is at like a very grassrootsy level of motorsport that, you know, doing those things, even kind of, you know, I'd been racing IndyCar for seven or eight years or something. You know, I'd done, I'd done seven or 10 Indy 500s or something before I, before I really started like seeking out different kinds of experiences like that. And, and every time I go do it, it makes me wish that I had done it sooner. You know, it's just such a cool part of being able to do this for a living. And, you know, it's just those, those really, and, and learning something new, I think is something that translates very much across any 
profession or any any interest or passion that people have you know but in this one there's there's obviously a, a really evocative human experience that's connected with that that's that's just been awesome to participate in it's so rare to actually have someone who has so much experience in so many different types of cars. Bonneville land speed cars is probably most extreme I've ever heard. So <laughs> congratulations for that. But that's a, that's a really cool experience. Most of our audience normally talks about Formula One. They're normally in the Formula One space. One of the things that we as Formula One fans are sometimes guilty of is thinking of F1 as the center of the motorsports universe and all other Motorsports series are inferior by definition. They're all, you know, underdeveloped, under-engineered, you know, all, the, all these things. And we know that that's, that's, not quite, that's not quite right. Just briefly, if you could say what would be the biggest misconception, perhaps, that F1 fans may have about other racing series and specifically IndyCar? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I guess I, I think that any racing fan who is really strictly a fan of one thing or is mostly, you know, mostly consumes one thing is probably missing out on on the technical idiosyncrasies, you know, idiosyncrasies, the kind of humanness, the the distinct style of humanness that exists in in other forms of racing. You know, so I would say that, you know, certainly to F1 fans about IndyCar, there's a lot of things I think about IndyCar that while they may not be as macro, they might may not present as like dramatically as they do in Formula One, where you have constructors that are building their own cars from from scratch every year. And, you know, this, this kind of, you know, certainly more openness compared to IndyCar being like a spec series. You know, I think about not, it's, I guess it's, it's an easy out to say, you know, everybody should have respect for the talent of the drivers everywhere else, you know, but, you know, beyond that, the talent of the engineering teams, the talent of the mechanics, the talent that's there of the manufacturers, like I, I would put up, I would put Ilmore or, you know, certainly HPD, you know, HPD is an easy one because they're sort of associated with Honda and there's a, there's, there's not quite a, as fine a line drawn between them, but. Um, we'll use Ilmore and like Pratt and Miller as you know the sort of Chevy examples having nothing to do with Formula One as it exists today. You know those are both entities that could certainly be licensed out to do incredible work at an F1 level. So you know being within the industry, you're able you, know, you have the opportunity to see that kind of behind the curtain a little bit more and to see the work that goes on behind the scenes, just given the regulatory set that IndyCar teams and manufacturers have to work with. You know, the fact that that's different doesn't necessarily mean that the, you know, the level of the work that's going on to kind of make the most of that regulatory set is, is any less impressive. So, and I think that that's true for everything. I mean, I was, uh, Bryson, you and I were kind of going back and forth about a uh, a drifting video, kind of looking at a little bit of the the physics that was involved there. I was going back, I as as a really extreme, you know, as a, a totally other end of the spectrum. I was going back and forth with Von Gittin about about their cars this year, about the Ford Mustang RTR drift cars, and he's like. 1300 horsepower all day long like they're pulling they're pulling a lateral g while spinning the tires at like these insane rates just the all of the weird you know watch watching like a world of outlaws car do what it does is just this totally extreme and bizarre you know science and engineering that's going on you know in in a in a completely different space so i feel like it's it's easy to point to like wrc and say okay, this is really incredible. Like you should definitely expand your horizons and watch this. But I think the reality of it is, 
if you're willing to be open-minded about it, you can find something really, truly interesting on either an engineering and technology level or a human, you know, race car driver level on pr- at pretty much any of these things. And that's, that's really what's so cool about it. And I would say, JR, just to jump in real quick on this point, when you introduced yourself and you talked about how you got into cars, it was that kind of passion for science and like anything, you know, with a with a gear and an engine and a motor, you know, a lot of us that are big tech heads, like, I mean, we're called the Tech Heads Podcast, right? You're with your kin <laughs> on this podcast. We are one in the same. And, I, you know, I just have to say that I, I totally echo what you're saying there, because when you're into the science of motorsport, you're not just into the science of Formula One. You're not just into the science of any car. The laws of physics are the same. It doesn't matter what motorsport you're following. And if you just allow yourself to dive into the details, you know, Molly spent, what was it, two, three weeks ago, Molly at MotoGP, and we yep. went down that whole oh, rabbit man. trail oh, of MotoGP aerodynamics, and it was yeah. the yep. coolest thing ever. So, yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, yeah, two-wheeled. I should, I, 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 you know, I, I get a little demerit for not mentioning two wheel and all of that, but <laughs> that's next, JR. <laughs> next, next. The, I think the only other thing I would just add to that really quick is that, you know, the only proof that you really need that there is that there is interesting stuff going on elsewhere is you know, when you get into the F1 paddock, how many of those engineers and mechanics and drivers and whatever are paying attention to a lot of other stuff that's going on, paying attention and are interested and passionate about a lot of other stuff that's going on, you know, within motorsport. So I think when you see that from within the industry, that's, that's not, I don't think communicated quite as clearly as maybe, you know, it it could be, but uh, it's certainly the truth when you get to know, when you get to know those guys and, you know, all of these communities are actually a lot smaller and closer together than, than they sort of, than certainly than they would appear on TV. Yeah, I know there's some uh, rivalries between series, but uh, there's some appreciation there as well. Just once again, briefly, so drawing from your multidisciplinary experience, just wanted to ask, do you actually have a, a favorite type of car that you've raced? And if so, what was your favorite thing about it? Yeah, I mean, my favorite car that I've ever raced was the 1975 Penske PC3 F1 car. So it was like a sort of flat bottom pre-ground effects, you know, DF uh, DFE car. And, you know, may- maybe full of fuel with me in it. Maybe it weighed like a thousand pounds or something. They're just, you know, it's like a sick cross between a top fuel dragster and a Formula Ford. And uh <laughs> And the, the and the reason I say that is just because it's it is still to this day having driven all kinds of you know a full array of modern race cars of all kinds it is unquestionably the one that gave me the most just like excessive driver's experience like it's fast when it's sideways it doesn't do anything particularly well except scaring the shit out of you like it's just you know, it's like a giant go-kart. Like when, when, when you hear race car, when you ask race car drivers what they want, they just want a giant go-kart. Like they want something that feels like that, that they can drive off the outside rear tire that is analog, that they feel through their butt, that they feel through the wheel. They, you know, that you just have this sort of unadulterated experience. And that to me is still actually having had that experience at a really young age. Like I, it was before I was racing IndyCar that, that I started doing some testing for guys that had cars like that, um, out on the West coast. And there's something about, I mean, at that time, at that time, you know, on a, on a good test day, we were, we were there, we were doing, I was doing a test day, shaking down that car 
after the American Le Mans series was at Sears Point, and we were like a second and a half off pull speed, you know, in in that thing with with ALMS cars that were very fast, like very high down forest, totally legit, you know, ALMS cars from the late two thousands. And so that's still very informative to me about what I what I wish modern day race cars were were more about. I mean, this is like a much bigger topic, but you think about the the rules and regulations and vehicle formulas that we have these days. And to to use a, a word that we don't like to say in, in motorsports, they're kind of arbitrary. Like why why does the car have this amount of power versus this amount of downforce versus this tire size? Like you could make a car in any one of these top level series, F1, IndyCar, NASCAR, you know, sports cars, whatever, that was faster than a human could possibly safely drive. Right. Yes. And so we've said that before. Yes. And so like, if we're not designing, if we're not designing regulations for the, for the legitimate and genuine pursuit of outright speed, because we're not, that's not happening anymore. Not in mainstream motorsports. You go to Pikes Peak, you can do that. If you go out to Bonneville, you can do that. If you go to King of the Hammers, you can do literally whatever you want to get through the course as fast as you can. But in these traditional spaces, that's not what we're doing anymore. So, so I think it, it, to me, raises a very relevant question and a necessary question to ask, which is, well, then what are we designing the regulations and vehicle formulas to be about? And Formula One has managed to still capture the essence of like being at the absolute pinnacle of technology and science within motorsport. When I think about IndyCar, I think like this should diverge more significantly from where F1 is right now and take the approach of, look, like we can run a 105-1 at Long Beach and go 235 at Indianapolis in literally a hundred different ways. In 1990, there was one way to do either of those things, and that's what CART was. Now there's a million different ways that we can do that. The cars could have 1,500 horsepower and no downforce, and they'd run the same lap time at all of these places. So at some point, we have to kind of zoom out, I think, and question, like, is the thing that we're creating just like a watered-down incremental version of some former self? And if that's the case, then why don't we just design it to be more awesome and excessive and and more kind of evocative, right? So that's that's just one that from a young age, I kind of had that experience and it's informed so much to me about like what modern motorsports really is over the course of my career, having had that experience of what it once was. So I, I, I think that that's, that's probably, that's not always like the answer that I think people expect to get, but you know, that's definitely the one that, that stands out to me because, because that same thing, you know, we were talking about, we've talked, or I've been on, you know, my social talking about like the current hypercar, you know, LMDH. And I'm stoked that there's so many manufacturers in it. Like that makes motorsport better unquestionably when there's lots of manufacturers involved. But if you rolled a super GT car out at spa, like it might've been on pole for the WEC race, right? Like that just tells this, there's just this weird kind of, you know, the, like the 919 Evo is 19 seconds faster than the, you know, than the current hypercars are at the same track. There's, there's just this thing going on that I feel like at a high level within the sport, we haven't really reconciled. And once we do that and we fully appreciate that this is the zone that we're in, I actually think like these regulations and the cars and the relevance to the manufacturers and relevance to the consumer will get better because we're not going to be just incrementally kind of changing things for no obvious reason. Formula One has always struggled with its identity in relation to IndyCar. 
Formula One wants to be the pinnacle of engineering. You want to be able to make the fastest cars possible and to design the most technologically advanced machines in the world. But that process does not reliably result in great racing. Teams build different cars and some of them are naturally faster than the other. It's not the case that the more technologically advanced your car is, the better the racing is. In fact, the absolute best racing comes from spec series where everyone has the same car. They modify their setup and you know suspension design and things. But it's one of the things that Formula One struggles with is how to maintain its identity of an engineering exercise and spectacle of building the cars, but also having great racing. It's been a challenge. That road relevancy and, and technology transfer, I, I don't want to like divert us. I, I could talk about that forever. But we're talking a lot about the comparison of F1 and IndyCar. And in IndyCar, there are rules around tires and compounds. And I'm going to lead this down a how could we make F1 racing more interesting kind of question. Could you explain the IndyCar compound rule and what it is, why it's important? And is this something we could use in F1 that would actually make the racing a little more interesting rather than the compound rules that they have been trying? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you know, IndyCar's IndyCar's comp. So we have two two tire compounds. Well, three, including a rain tire, but it's just a single rain tire. So two dry weather compounds. One just a, a soft and a and a primary, right? Like a, a sort of hard and a soft. And the way the rules essentially work, like teams are given an explicit number of those tires in the beginning of every road and street course weekend. There's also some sort of regulation in terms of when they can use the alternate tire, the soft tire. And so that has that has kind of loosened up over the years. Like during my initial tenure in IndyCar, it was much more strict. Like you well, you didn't get you didn't get to use the soft compound tire until you got to qualifying. And then you had to carry over a set and there's kind of all of this sort of stuff. Now they're, you know, giving teams a chance to use the soft compound tire during the first practice session just to, you know, give them kind of a uh, a, a rough estimate on what they're going to expect throughout the rest of the weekend. But I think if there's anything, I guess, that that makes IndyCar interesting to me from that perspective, it's just that it's more simple, basically. Like you just have this this dichotomy of the two tires. There's the fact that there's only two options also makes it so that there's a little bit more variability as you go into the race weekends, which in IndyCar, given that it's so close to start with having that little bit of additional strategic variability in terms of really not always knowing, particularly given that we go to a lot of temporary circuits, not always knowing how the track's going to evolve and and really having to take more of an educated guess in terms of how long the alternate, the soft tire is going to last like what your wear duration is going to be over the course of you know the races. It's just, I think it's, I guess com- in comparison to F1 for a casual fan, certainly it's a little bit more straightforward to consume just kind of the the differences between when somebody's on the primary, when somebody's on the soft and, and sort of what you're, what you're going to get out of that. I, you know, personally, I don't find the, I think it's interesting. The, the thing that's interesting to me about F1's sort of whole situation is is that you actually have these five different compounds and then on a weekend you've you're just working with three. So there are sometimes I think where it can be a little confusing when you're talking about C1, C2, C3, you know, whatever, but then they're sort of marked as soft, medium, hard in a different order over the course of the weekend. I guess I can see how that, you know, that could be cleaned up a tad for the for the viewer that isn't uh that isn't watching weekend to weekend or really following that closely. I, I guess I wonder sometimes how much does that matter? I, I don't I don't really know. But you know, in the in the IndyCar series, it's definitely a little bit more straightforward. And the fact that you end up with just these two compounds to choose from and you have to use them both over the course of the race. 
we obviously also do still have refueling in the race. So it's you basically never see a one-stop strategy over the course of the race. So that also just, I think, provides for more strategic variance, basically event to event, team to team, car to car, the way the yellow flag rules work, all of those kinds of things. So that, and that is not necessarily to say that I think the outcome of that in terms of IndyCar's racing product versus Formula One's is better or worse, but definitely, you know, that is a difference for sure between the two of them, you know, kind of the product of all of those things coming together is that in IndyCar, there's, there are a lot more races where just simply on, on a strategic grounds, let alone, you know, yellow flags or, or anything that are, you know, true unknowns over the course of an event that you really won't know at the halfway point, exactly how the race is going to play out, which which I think is something that does lend itself to IndyCar's racing being a little more engaging, at least over the course of the event, you know, than F1, you know, F1, F, particularly in, in seasons like this, it's kind of like, okay, I feel like this is kind of a foregone conclusion, what's going to go on halfway through the event <laughs> part of the time. You have to run two laps on those tires, right? You can't just one and done. It's two laps minimum, right? Before you can can change your other compound. Yeah. So there's a lot of times where it's like there's a first lap incident and you're just praying that you get a two lap yellow so you can come yeah. in, get off, you know, change your strategy, <laughs> get on the get back on the primary usually in those instances, yeah. you know, and go from there. And I'm glad you mentioned the refueling side of things there, JR, because I think as somebody who grew up watching IndyCar and, and you know, some, and IMSA racing was actually how I kind of got into motorsports when I was a young kid. But I think the refueling side is something that probably most Formula One fans don't appreciate the strategy around that because plug for your The Race podcast that you're in, the last one you did on Roman Grosjean's performance at Skip. A really good explanation on the two-stop versus the three-stop kind of strategy and something yeah. that people don't necessarily think of, which is, you know, in F1, you've, you've got the fuel you've got, right? But whether you're choosing to do a two or a three, the level of fuel you have is going to determine the amount of mass you have, which is going to determine how you stress your tires. So even though you do have to come in for an extra stop, you're probably taking less life out of each of the tires each time that you do it, you know? And so it's just really interesting aspect. I, I know they won't ever bring refueling back to Formula One, <laughs> but <laughs> it could be really an interesting uh, sort of, a, as they say here in the UK, a spanner thrown into the works. Yes, there does seem to be some elitism in Formula One sometimes. It's something that we suffer from occasionally. But there are some really great ideas in other racing series that I think Formula One would be well advised to adopt. For example, push to pass an IndyCar is a finite amount of benefit that you can have. DRS is currently unlimited in Formula One. And therefore, there's no real strategy to whether you're using it or, or not using it. One of the things that we could very easily discuss is maybe a finite number of DRS applications or the limited proximity to a car that you can actually use it, you know, forward and behind you to be able to create some kind of differential pace to be able to affect the pass. We've also talked a lot about red flag rules in Formula One and whether or not Formula One should adopt an IndyCar style rule where you're not allowed to get a free change of tires in the event of a red flag. Yeah. I mean, I, I can just jump on, on, on those two things really quick because they're definitely things that, that we think about and notice and certainly notice when we're watching F1 races, you know, the the push to pass versus DRS, you know, yeah, the main difference is just that it's something that is a totally safe for the driver to deploy just wherever. So that's kind of that, that, that just fundamentally is, I think, a difference in terms of how it works that that is an interesting difference to consider, I think, between the two of them. Um, you know, that that DRS, like you said, is kind of a passive 
there's a passive application, like it just happens and it, it only happens in these handful of places. And that, and the fact that it only happens in those handful, handful of places is for good reason, right? We don't need Fernando Alonso taking his hand off the steering wheel through the last corner through Bar- at Barcelona to open the, or close the F duct or, you know, whatever. Like there's definitely some very sketchy, you know, if, if you leave it up to the drivers, it's for sure going to all go wrong. But that push to pass is certainly a, a safer thing to think about from that perspective. So, you know, in in the in the spirit of looking for something to to make be a more uh, you know make into a more active kind of component of passing, put that put it more in the driver's hands. I think push to pass or something along those lines is is definitely interesting. And I guess the fact that it depends on what you're ultimately. I think in comparing the fact that you know an IndyCar with push to pass, you can also use it to defend against somebody else who's got push to pass. You know, in in F one with DRS, it it obviously doesn't work that way unless you're also close enough to the car in front of you that you're getting, you know, you're just getting sucked along in the DRS train. You know, ultimately, I think that that considering something along those lines in F one depends upon taking a good hard look at what the outcome in F one is going to be for that, which is probably just that you have you end up with way less to no passing whatsoever. Unless it is something like you said that is a, is strategically deployed by the driver a finite number of times over the course of the race, so I think just just to to kind of tie a bow on that, those are those are all the things that we look at and think about because we're always thinking the same thing in, in across the pond in IndyCar or I know in other championships. You know, considering does something like DRS make sense for us? You know, it's working in this particular way for F one. You know, is that a cue that we should be taking? You know, and and I guess with the red flag rules, I, I'll I'll just say I think mostly for uh, we notice it more for qualifying I think than than we do in the race. Like an IndyCar, there's a very strict like if you bring out a yellow, if you bring out a red flag, you you are losing like all your laps. You are not advancing to the next session, and they've implemented a a tweak to that. We have these situations happen way more frequently, also. So there's a part of it that like the the rapid iteration of these rules has just happened faster in IndyCar because they they occur much more these these situations occur much more frequently. But you know the other part of it now is in a situation just like today, every driver in in an IndyCar session in a Q3 like that would have had a chance to go out regardless of how much time is left on the clock and and set one timed lap. So even just some little tweaks to the F1 you know, regs, I think, I think there, I think there is something in IndyCar to look at so that you can get through a complete session without having this kind of, oh, like we didn't, you know, somebody just left it too late. You could blame them for leaving. You could blame it on, on Max and, and Red Bull for not making a earlier run on a set of used softs. Like that's, that's certain, that's what'll end up, that's what happens. Right. But, you know, I guess at the same time, there's, there are other situations where just everybody gets totally hosed out of, you know, putting together, putting something together. And, and that's either, uh, that's either something that creates for variability that you end up liking as a part of the product or, or it's something that ultimately, you know, F1, you know, looks at and says, you know, we'd, we'd like to have as, as clear a representation or as, as authentic a representation of where everybody's at as they can be. Cause that's what we think fans really want to see. And, you know, and you tweak the rules back that direction, but but there's definitely differences that uh, that make for a different sort of product. I have to fully agree with you there, JR. I think there's a lot of things that we can learn, uh, especially like you mentioned about the yellow flag uh, and red fra- red flag uh, rules. My favorite um, rules. Yes. Yeah. 
So I do have a question uh, here about, you know, uh, I think generally when Formula One people think about IndyCar, they think about, oh, it's a spec series or whatever. And we've already kind of talked about being open to, you know, other series and stuff. But maybe what the casual fan might not understand is, you know, kind of what's going on with the shadow development, you know, kind of wars that are going on at the moment around the dampers, especially. What are your your thoughts about this and how does it affect kind of the field, the the landscape, you know, with all the development going on in this area? Yeah, I think that, you know, you're just looking at, uh, you know, much more sort of micro areas of development. Right. And but but kind of to an earlier point that, you know, we chatted about was just because those areas are smaller and not like the bodywork on the entire car or the fundamental chassis design or, you know, whatever, doesn't mean that there's sort of any less effort and, you know, engineering and science going into figuring out what the best possible way of extracting maximum performance out of those areas that are open um, really are. So the dampers on an IndyCar is kind of like the one area that is is basically free to do whatever you want. It's it's where you, you even have some F1 teams, um, you know, an F1 damper developers going working for some IndyCar teams because they get to play around even more than they do in, in F1 in some in some regards. Or it's a it's certainly a more significant you know component to the overall performance of a car and a team in IndyCar, just because there's so much less that you can mess with. You know, I think the same sort of extends to the aero and vehicle dynamics works that the manufacturers are doing in the IndyCar series. That's where a lot of it, because of the fact that the testing regulations for wind tunnel days and straight line testing and all that stuff are so enormously restricted for teams, the man, they're not really restricted for the manufacturers. The manufacturers, Honda and Chevy, are doing an incredible amount of that work through through their you know engine manufacturers, but then through respectively HPD and Pratt and Miller, you know. So so there's a lot of things that are going on behind the scenes that you know. Like, and even you think about the work that Delara does. I mean, they're it, it's a it, it's I guess serendipitous that the Haas is so good this weekend that we're that we're talking about this and I bring this up. But you know the, the Delara is doing an enormous amount of the development that's going on for that car and that team. You know, just because IndyCar is a spec series and we're working with a spec car kind of doesn't mean that all of that capability isn't basically in reserve or or being applied to aspects of what's going on in IndyCar behind the scenes. So, yeah, to your point, you know, it's it's not something that's really on the forefront, but definitely something that's affecting the way the teams think and what they're doing on a you know day to day basis, 365. Yeah, I was going to jump in and ask because it's what i think teams are only allowed five testing days of the year and if they wanted wind tunnel run it's it subtracts from the five and they'd rather do on track for obvious reasons but then chevy and honda they can run as much as they want as long as they want as frequently as they want right yeah they're definitely yeah they're they're in it and they're doing a lot of the work on behalf of the teams for sure yeah i was gonna ask is that and then that's passed on traditionally to the teams of their learnings. Um, and I was just going to ask, do you think that this is, is it a system that works? Is it maybe needs to be run reined in or, or let it be and let, let Chevy and Honda cook and, and come up with what they're going to come up with. Cause it's part <laughs> of the, the fun of the series. Yeah, I think, I guess I think that the reason it's, the reason it's that way is to keep the economics for the teams to be sort of under control. And so <laughs> that aspect of it, I have a hard time arguing with, I guess, because it sort of just is what it is, right? Like that's that that's the you know whether it's 
you know, in F1, they've, we've, they've obviously implemented a cost cap and that's kind of one way of doing, having already done all kinds of testing regulation in the past. And IndyCar has followed a similar trajectory down to the point, yeah, like you said, where basically the teams themselves have five days that you can use for literally anything that you would possibly use a car for to go testing. So you're really enormously restricted in terms of what you can actually go do out in the real world from that perspective. Um, yeah. inclusive of, of wind tunnel time. But I mean, I can say for sure the the fact that the manufacturers are doing that, it begs the question of, is it putting an, uh, you know, uh, uh, an undue or, you know, overly substantial economic burden on them to, to manage that? The fact of the matter is, I think that the, the sort of economy of scale for the manufacturers to be doing this because they have a lot of these resources already, you know, of their own, basically, it just it's a little easier for them to shoulder that shoulder that burden and so i think for indycar for where it's at right now this is sort of a sensible way for it to work that everybody that there is still a lot of development happening but everybody's sort of on board with what's going on i mean i can speak to how good the development that the teams are that that chevy and honda do is you know when we when i was at ed carpenter racing which is year after year you know, arguably the best, they, they have been the best qualifying Chevy team at Indianapolis for like a decade, basically, just if you looked at their average performance over that period of time, you know, Penske, I remember, I always remember like the Penske guys were always like, what, you know, what crazy stuff are you guys going and doing in the wind tunnel? And we were like, we are literally just using the Pratt and Miller trim list for qualifying. Like, what are you guys doing? You know, um, so it's definitely, uh, you know, it's, it's high quality work that those groups are doing. And I think it's, I think for where everything's at, it sort of makes sense for it to work this way for now. Yeah. And from an economic standpoint, we just saw Honda invest in a brand new full scale wind tunnel at their HPD facility in Ohio, right? Yeah. They're not messing around. Yeah. So <laughs> it's obviously still making sense because they've, they've got this big, beautiful state of the art full scale tunnel now. And I think that's something that fans might not know about IndyCar too, is these are full-scale tunnels that yeah. uh, Chevrolet and Honda both use. Yeah. Windshear is in North Carolina, which is the one that Chevy, you know, that everybody's kind of used, but um, Chevy uses really yeah. closely. Chevy's building a huge tech center of their own, you know, and that the manufacturers also are the ones that, you know, own and operate the simulators that the driver in loop simulators that, that all the teams use. So Chevy's got three now honda's got a couple um you know and they're they're f1 spec is it indycar that has a limit on dill time or is it uh, nascar that limited that i it's a good question i'm i am not sure whether i mean i i know i know just from a practical perspective like on the chevy side of things for sure that basically the dill is getting used just like every day of the year between nascar teams indycar teams and i mean they've they've added I think they've added two simulators basically just because they were completely maxed on the amount of time that they were using. So I, that was that up until maybe just recently was the constraint. Okay. Sorry. Sorry for the tangent there. I was, <laughs> I was curious. I couldn't remember if it was IndyCar or not. No, the, the best stuff comes from tangents. So definitely no need to apologize yeah. <laughs> there. Uh, one of the things that almost defines Formula One in the modern era is aerodynamics. It's a critical factor in establishing the performance of the cars, the ability to generate downforce, the ability to actually have enough downforce to have extreme braking and to do lateral cornering. A lot of that comes from aero development, a big part of which is you know wind tunnels, as we talked about before, but also CFD and being able to evaluate CFD uh, simulations of different geometries and maybe 1% of the geometry is actually 
develop actually end up on the car, but each team is is responsible for their own arrow, developing it and creating it and all these factors. Looking at other racing series, and in particular spec racing series like IndyCar, I'm curious if you can add a little bit of context into how aero development works when you have a spec series, a spec you know supplier for chassis like Dallara, and how do we actually get information about real world details like aero maps? You know, do teams have any say in how to develop what those aero maps are, or does that data come from Dallara? And then how do we figure out what the real car behavior is? Yeah, I mean, basically, I think it's a little different probably for every you know, all of the series outside of, outside of F1, you know, I can speak a little bit to the process in IndyCar, which is, you know, Delara develops kind of all the initial mapping for all of the stuff, particularly right now, because it's a universal arrow kit that Delara is building. So they kind of do the initial rundown of everything. And every time they come out with a new set of parts, like at Indianapolis this year, we'll have some slightly different arrow parts that you know, will be available for use to try to create a little cleaner, wake behind the cars a little more, you know, I don't know, sort of free downforce, basically the cars at Indianapolis on and in super speedway trim with the, with this universal arrow kit, with the arrow screen, they've gotten heavier. They're, they're basically just in need of a little more downforce than they used to have to be able to kind of run at the, in the performance window and particularly to be able to run in traffic, you know, the way that they, that we, you know, and fans of IndyCar have kind of been used to, which is, which is not cars being able to just run away with it. So, so Delara develops all of those things initially. Basically, the the manufacturers then are the ones that do the brunt of the secondary development to find the little, the little, the little idiosyncrasies, the little tolerances that teams need to be aware of. They do a very good job of developing, you know, a, a pretty clear picture of like if if all you did as an IndyCar team was take what the manufacturer gave to you from an aero perspective you would be you know looking pretty good as a starting point to go to any track and compete in that area at a pretty high level you know then you then you have the teams that you know do have the resources to go out there and do their own do their own testing whether that be CFD I mean this is migrated as it has in F1 very rapidly to extremely advanced simulation programs that you know that's basically where all the modeling and mapping for all of this stuff is going as opposed to more traditional like pure cfd work and so um that's it's interesting that that you know along with the simulation comes a necessity to add manpower and and to really like understand and develop those programs and build that you know, IndyCar, the, the bigger IndyCar teams have, have already done that, you know, e- but even the smaller teams now, the fact that that's possible to do and that these simulation programs are as good as they are, you know, that has kind of democratized that, I don't know, capability a little bit more across the full spectrum of big team, big budget, small team, small budget in a way that I think was not so much the case like 10 years ago. And so, you know, 10 years ago, even as I think kind of mirrored F1, but, but in, you know, just a, a sort of at a different magnitude that, you know, the big teams that, that had supercomputing that could really crunch a lot of this stuff that had the budget to support going and doing those things. It made it so that you had those capabilities against teams that just didn't have that capability at all. Whereas now it's spread a little bit more evenly across, you know, what you're able to do with it. And, and it's more a matter of just the quality 
of the quality of the simulation work that you can do and and how quickly you can get through it. So, you know, that I guess I would say that's just sort of the state of aero development and and for that matter, just development kind of in general in IndyCar. Since you are a, a relatively new member of our semi-secret F1 tech group chat, you, <laughs> you may have been privy to one of the conversations we had recently about wall proximity aerodynamics in NASCAR and other series. Since you have a lot of experience driving in ovals, I was just curious as to what your experience was and what is the wall proximity effect? Does it push you away from the wall? Does it suck you towards the wall? Does it depend on how close you are? Just wondering if you could give a little bit of insight into what it's actually like to drive because it's a sort of mystical, mysterious thing that we know exists, but actually ties into other series as well. We're talking about, I think, Baku the last time out and wondering if the close proximity of the walls, I think this is Dr. Ops' point, but wondering if the close proximity of the walls is actually affecting the aerodynamics of the cars enough to change the wake profile, to modify how easy it is for the cars to, the cars to overtake each other. That's not an invalid point either. So just curious as to what your thoughts are on, on wall proximity arrow. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I mean, it's definitely something, I think it's actually something that we think about a little bit more in the context of just when you're on track by yourself at a place like Indianapolis, like, you know, you, it, it ultimately like my driving line around Indianapolis on a qualifying lap is, 90 something percent, like a high percentage of it is dictated by basically just where do I want to place the car relative to the corner. And that when you think about exiting the corner, like exiting the corner off of turn two onto the back straight, one of the reasons that I'm, you know, I'm going to use as much road as I need to use for the sake of, you know, mechanically basically like maximizing, you know, the exit of turn two. Um, I've certainly never, and I don't think anybody has experienced there being a downside from an arrow perspective to, you know, the, the, the trade-off there ends up in favor of mechanically using up all the road, but that even then you you, you will see guys kind of migrate away from the wall, usually just kind of into the middle of the track on qualifying runs at Indy. And, and a lot of that is actually because you've got tire stagger, like it, it allows the car to accelerate a little bit better if you let it continue to arc off the corner, like into the middle of the track, just a little bit. And so it was, this was actually something that was more dramatically noticeable in data, like in a slower car. So when I was racing Indy Lights, this was something that you just, you kind of, you could really feel it because you were just going slower through the corner, basically. You, were, you weren't quite as close to the actual mechanical limit of the car. So this kind of, you know, mechanical, um, you know, acceleration that you would get by finding the sort of sweet spot of just the arc that the car wants to run because of the tire stagger, that there was a little bit less, you know, basically resistance, um, by running that arc. And so you'll, you'll kind of pull away from the wall a little bit for that reason. And then obviously then bending into turn three at the end of the straightaway, you know, you need to use all the road to, you know, used to, to carry maximum speed and, and reduce the scrub as much as possible, bending into the end of the, bending, bending into the corner there. It was something that was interesting though. Jimmy Johnson, when he came out, when he was running at the speedway last year, I ran, it was running behind him in practice and coming from NASCAR, it was common for him, even in the IndyCar to basically just run right against the wall, the entire way down the straightaways, which was totally weird to follow somebody doing that because it was just so, I was like, 
like what i don't want to drive i don't want to drive all the way up against the wall like that like tires are getting dirty like but i guess the only way i'm gonna get only way i'm gonna get a slipstream and get a draft off him is to drive right behind him all the way over there so i guess that alerted me certainly to the fact that there are different you know takes on on doing that the only experience i i have with kind of that buffer effect which is something that you know we do talk about a little bit is i have had some instances with you know a crosswind and a lot of understeer particularly in turn 2 at indianapolis turn 2 is the entry to turn 2 in particular is slightly less banked than the other three corners and so it's just a uh, it's natural to get understeer there and it it's not uncommon to have a crosswind that's kind of, you know, pushing the car from the inside to the outside of the corner through turn two. That I've had it happen a couple of times that, okay, I'm like bailing off throttle because I am just like understeering at the wall. And that it does, it has happened more often than not in those instances that it does like hook up and not hit the wall right at the last second, which um, I, I have no proof whatsoever that there is an arrow effect of kind of building up a, you know, uh, a little bit of an air cushion there. But um, but if that was the case, it wouldn't shock me based on my experience. I'd had no idea turn two was slightly less baked than the other ones, but it doesn't surprise me because that's where Sebastian Bourdais had his really big crash that one time I remember. Yeah. Turning, bending into turn two is is usually one of the hardest things to do on like lap four of a qualifying lap at Indy because you usually don't have the wind like in your favor. Like it's almost never a direct headwind at the apex of the corner. So it's not helping you basically get through the corner. And, and it's, it's where it's, it's, it's always in sunlight. So if there's sunlight on the track, turn two is totally exposed. There's no, you're not going to get any grandstand shadow or nothing. So it's usually hot. And because it's, because the basically the exit of turn one through that short shoot into the entry of turn two is flatter than the same part of the track on the other end of the track. And so, you know, it's it's common to kind of get like arrow understeer and and mechanical wash at the exit of turn one. You know, it's it's where you'll you'll see guys that do that. You know, you learn over time, like you really have to prioritize turning in kind of on as late an arc as you possibly can into turn one to combat against getting that arrow push um, at the exit because the track does kind of just fall away from you a little bit and then bending into turn two just like seb had happened and that is not an uncommon accident in various forms whether you're in traffic or you're in i mean grosjean jimmy like most of the accidents that happened last year during the race some of them were just single car accidents during the race so with like race down force um, happened in turn two, basically because if you bend in too late and aren't going to get down to the apex and lift a little because it's so flat there and you're building into the banking a little bit, you just the front sticks and you know you're and you're toast. So definitely every corner is a little different, but for for that reason, one and two are are almost always more difficult than three and four. Yeah, speaking of Indy and speaking of Arrow and speaking of manufacturer maps and, and sheets and stuff like that, um, I think this is the first 500 that there's been such a large matrix of aerodynamic features and pieces that teams can use and modulate with to play with their 500 setups. And I think one that we've seen a big talking point around, I think it was the underwing that they said actually had a bigger effect on COP and balance from frontward to rearward than teams were anticipating during that 
open test. What do you think of this larger matrix of setups and how it's going to affect the field maybe without a crystal ball or anything like that? But from what your perspective is, how is that maybe going to affect field shakeup, field gaps? Um, Do you think this will affect the pack and how close everybody will stay together during the race because i think we saw texas there were what two cars on the lead lap at one point with Mm -hmm. that new kind of separate aero package so what are are your thoughts on on that kind of set of aero that has been handed down for for the 500 coming up since it is may as well yeah i think um yes i mean what you're describing is there's just more options basically for the teams right Mm -hmm. and so there's there's a few extra a few additional pieces you know, the teams that they're during the aero kit period, which was like 2015 to 2017, particularly on the Chevy, um, we had like a ton of different parts. Like you were qualifying cars that looked totally different than, than other cars, just because of the mashup of parts that you had and, and, and kind of all this different stuff. So I, I think that the teams are at least kind of used to having to go through this what that experience tells me is that not everybody is going to agree on, you know, what's, what's right probably. But in this particular context, at least at Texas, basically everybody ran all the new parts because they were all more efficient than, um, you know, adding rear wing basically, or adding a rear wing wicker, which is, which has been for race running, at least the only available downforce add from kind of the standard setup that everybody's going to run. And so, It'll be interesting to see what the what the kind of use case looks like at Indy. My expectation, I guess, not knowing anything specifically about what the teams are expecting to do, is that they'll probably just pile all of these parts on as, as well at Indianapolis for race running. Um, I mean, the the differences basically are there's an additional. They're calling them sort of a barge board. It's just like a um, at the front uh, at the entry to the underwing. There's just like a, a a kind of turning vein, basically like a flick, a horizontal flick that that we we had one last year. So they've just added one, an inboard one from the one that we already had to use. Um, the effect of that last year was actually, or I guess for the last, it, we've had it the last two years. When they introduced that, it was really interesting because a lot of us threw it on, you know, and, and it was kind of a late addition. Like we didn't we didn't have a lot of time with it before we used it on track. Threw it on. It was supposed to be more downforce, so you're kind of figuring like, all right, well, we'll use it. Went out, went out with the same kind of ride heights and stuff that we had, you know, been running, you know, without them. And a bunch of teams like took them off right away. Like, oh, this is this is way worse. Like, this is making the car super nervous and sketchy. Like, is something weird going on with the under tray? And and then of course, you know, the the Pratt Miller guys and the HPT guys walked down to all the teams were like, no, like you're just running the wrong right height map for have running those parts. And so went back out and we actually, we were running literally like nose up. Um, so, you know, re- reverse rake, negative rake. Um, and that we gained a ton of downforce when you went nose up, um, you know, with these parts on. So it just goes to show, I mean, to, to various examples of, um, you think it might be as simple as just adding on a new part that's going to add downforce to the car. It's never quite that simple. And, and sometimes it depends on doing things that might mechanically or otherwise not make a lot of sense, but because the arrow is such a huge component of the performance of the car, um, you know, that just as with F1, if you took all the, 
if you took all the arrow off the cars, the mechanical setups wouldn't make any sense. You know, you wouldn't build the you, know, you wouldn't build the suspension geometries to work like they do. But because they're advantageous to the way the arrow works, that's uh, you know that's better overall for performance. So a little bit of that you know kind of trickling down in our direction. Um, you know, the other thing that seems like a like an obvious one. So we've, we've got a couple of new parts basically that we can use to actually answer your question. Um, the, the thing that I think will end up happening at Indianapolis, which is different from kind of what we saw at Texas, it manifested itself at the end of the race at Texas, which was yeah, more downforce will just mean that the pack is closer together. Um, and that, mm-hmm. that I think will be even more so the case at Indianapolis throughout practice and through the race. Um, because the cars are just simply like at terminal velocity or close to terminal velocity for a much higher percentage of the lap, um, than you are at Texas motor speedway at Texas, you're, um, you know, cornering limited, um, from a performance perspective in a, just in a different way. And so you're spending a lot less time just, you know, pegged down the straight. Whereas at Indianapolis, um, you know, being able to just run a little closer to the car in front of you through the corner, is going to make a big difference in terms of how close you can stay in the passing opportunity than, um, you know, going down the straight. So I think that's, I think that's what, you know, if I, if I was to pull out my crystal ball, I think that's what it would say. Yeah. Do you, I think I hate that I'm asking these crystal ball questions, but do you think just like Texas will see convergence where everybody kind of decides to throw on the same setup or throw on the same things? Or will we see kind of market differences where usually in the past we see Honda sometimes have less downforce than the Chevys. Chevys often run higher downforce at Indy. Do you think we'll see a field convergence or you think it's, it's going to be different team to team, manufacturer to manufacturer still? I think you'll have different downforce levels, but I don't think it will be in these like, I don't think you'll see a lot of different parts being run to achieve that. I think that, I think yeah. my, my guess would be that most of the aero parts are pretty high on the efficiency scale. And so they'll just, they'll go on before you'll start messing with rear wing angles and and doing stuff like that. So you'll see, you'll see cars on the grid definitely with, you'll see some cars out there with you know, plus two degrees, you'll see some cars out there with plus five degrees. You might see some cars out there that trim during the race, you know, whatever. But, but my guess would be that that will be, you know, what you notice, not, oh, you know, there's three or four cars among the front runners that are running these parts. There's three or four that aren't. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's the thing I love about Arrow. Seemingly imperceptible changes make massive differences in performance. That's one of the coolest things I can think of in F1 and IndyCar as well. What I was going to ask is, you know, with the, with the, the flicks the, to, to the undertrain, everything they yeah. added for Indy 500 this time, when you said that they added it, then you had to go kind of nose up. Did you get more forward arrow balance when it, when it did that? Like, did, was it a bit more on the nose after that? Or was it just I think it was basically just that it was, it, it had been disrupting the flow through the, it had been sort of like choking the front of the underwing Yeah. Okay. when the cars were at their traditional ride heights, because the, those pieces do extend pretty far. I mean, there's, they extend five or six inches or something yeah. forward of the, of the under tray itself. And so, and they're, you know, they're this tall or something. So they're, you know, that much, they're an inch and whatever below the leading edge of the underwing at least. And so um, basically we were just getting a lot of, I actually never drove it 
Um, it was the, my first year at Foyt was two years ago. Sebastian Bourdais was kind of the primary car. And so he went out with with his engineer, who was a former engineer of mine, Justin Taylor, who was like a he's he's on the Ferrari hypercar now. He was he he came to IndyCar for my like last full time season at ECR in twenty seventeen from the fact he was one of the factory Audi LMP one race engineers. So like between the two of them, definitely stacked with knowledge and experience across all kinds of different development spectrums. But yeah, they went out with it and and Seb was just like, it's like scary to drive. <laughs> Just no, no feel for what the car is going to do. Basically, like yeah. it's it's kind of seems like pinned on the nose here, and and then I and then I'm picking up huge understeer from center to exit. Like what the fuck? Yeah. Is going on? And um, and so and we had we had discussed that the aero map suggested sort of dramatically different ride heights, but. It it was it wasn't it wasn't sort of outlined in a way that it seemed like it was going to be really awful if you were outside that window, and so like that had not been uh, you know like communicated to us, and so so we were among I think a number of teams initially that were just like okay forget it like the car's kind of working all right as it is we're not going to run them for qualifying one way or the other so why are we screwing around with this? And, and so then on our, on our side, we were just, uh, my engineer and I were kind of like, okay, well look, like we'll just go all the way to the other end of the spectrum and do everything, whether it makes sense or not, we'll just put on the exact, this weird high rake setup that the arrow map seems to be suggesting. And we'll just go run some laps. Like if it's not great, then whatever. And and I came back in and was like, Oh dude, like the, <laughs> the, cause we, it, it, it's not, totally uncommon in different aero configurations at Indianapolis that running the car a little nose up, it does decrease the sensitivity of the COP shift through the corner by a lot. And so depending on what you're doing with the car mechanically, you know, if you can, if you can kind of manage to not be super reliant on the front wing to turn the car through the corner, especially in traffic, then you can kind of get away with sometimes you can get away with these, you know, more, I guess, low rake settings, right? Like more kind of cars flat or, or nose up, um, just because it desensitizes the COP shift, desensitizes the front wing. So it, it reduces the COP shift, but yeah, in that, in that circumstance, it was just like, Oh no, this is just, we're now that we're now we're not closing off the front of the, underwing and yeah. so we're actually the car is just making more downforce period like it's not wasn't like a cop thing one way or the other it was just okay now we're still having to do all normal stuff that we would do screwing around with the front wing rear wing you know to get the to get the cop right get the aero balance right but um was just noticeably noticeably like heavier steering all the way through the corner like car is just making more down for us. We have got to figure out how to make this work. Yeah. And that's, and I mean, it makes sense because, you know, when I see those things, what I think of in, in a parallel to like, you know, now the ground effect cars that they have in formula one and you've got the, yeah. the inlet strikes, you've got the inlet fences yep. and a lot of teams are actually playing with, uh, you know, the, basically how much crank they have on these, uh, especially on the bottom edge, because you can get that ground effect, 
because what's happening is you're basically shedding a vortex off of those fences and you're getting vortex induced suction through the floor. And which is like, when you get that, when you don't get vortex blow up, but you've got steady vortices because you're not having a ground effect issue. That's like the suction you get from it is intense. Like it's massive. I mean, you, you can look at all the research, but it's gotta be like steady. It's gotta be consistent. You can't have that vortex burst. So that yeah, it makes it makes total sense that if you're if you're choking it and then you maybe go it went a little bit nose up then in that case then you would have had maybe more consistent vortex shedding and then you would have gotten better vortex induced suction so that's pretty cool you, you've explained what i feel in much greater detail than i would have ever been able to so but yeah no it's that's definitely what's happening yeah I know you've done a bit of karting. You know, I dabbled a little bit when I was younger and did a bit of autocross uh, as well myself, but um, never could quite get over the nausea that I would get when I was pulling G's in corners. <laughs> but um, I, I, it happens, yeah, no doubt. I, I think it's pretty cool when you can kind of pair the science background that you have with, you know, because when when you actually know, like you understand contact patch, you understand. It, you know, thinking of the amount of grip that you have in terms of a cup and how much you're going to spend on breaking, how much you're going to spend on, lap, you know, a lateral G-force to turn into a corner or acceleration. Like when your mind is rigged that way, like I just think you just think totally different and you had the talent to do it. So I, I think that's pretty cool. JR, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I have to say you didn't disappoint us in any way. We knew this conversation was going to be great anyway, <laughs> but but I think we learned a lot, uh, a huge amount from you. So thank you for stopping by. I want to make sure I give you an opportunity to talk about any projects you're working on currently and and let people know where they can find you to hear more of your insights. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Uh, you can check out the Race IndyCar podcast. And um, otherwise, yeah, you can find me on social. Um, I'm reasonably, I've, I have made a commitment to become more active on my social and talk about these types of things more frequently. So um excited to uh to ramp that up a little bit. Uh just at JR Hildebrand anywhere uh anywhere you're on. So yeah, look forward to the conversation extending beyond the pod. Oh yeah, I'll be I'll be in your DMs. Laughs nervously. No, just thanks for coming on, JR. Uh, IndyCar was one of my first motorsports loves, so I, I could talk IndyCar forever. But uh, that was there were so many fascinating little nuggets. So thanks for coming on, and this was a blast. Of course, of course. Yeah, from my side, JR, really appreciate you spending your time with us today. You, you're our second IndyCar driver that we had. We had Dalton Kellett on as well, who's also, I yeah, think, right a on. STEM nerd, STEM nerd like you as well. And I think we really uh, enjoy talking to the people that understand the science of racing as well. And then when you kind of pair that with your your race knowledge, your wheel knowledge, it's like my head explodes every time. So yeah. this was definitely an awesome session. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Right on. Thanks, guys. Same. All right. That'll do it from us, and we'll see you guys next time.
I, I know they won't ever bring refueling back to Formula One, but <laughs> <laughs> it could be really an interesting uh, sort of, a, as they say here in the UK, a spanner thrown into the works, which is you're absorbing by osmosis, Dr. Ozzy, all, all I am Britishisms and things. Your official <laughs> European I, card will be in the mail of expected to arrive in seven to 10 business days for that one. <laughs> oh, Molly, I'm 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 quite chuffed. Thank you, Molly. I mean, um, 